the 11th chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11. So I don't know how much, which you don't have to, this isn't that important, but I don't know uh, how much attention people pay to the titles of these sermons in the bulletin. I'm going to change the title tonight a little bit to the Twofold Witness Part 1. And uh, I'm only going to talk or walk through the first two verses of chapter 11 tonight. I, I, I hope you'll understand the reason for that. I'm not trying to make this tedious for us, okay? I really don't want to do that. Um, I know that my approach to Revelation that I believe and that I'm preaching, um, I believe this. I believe that's what the Bible teaches, but I know there are differences on that. And what I'm preaching here is probably either alien or very different to what folks have heard here or have heard as, as most Baptists kind of believe the same thing. And so I, I, and that's all right. I just, I know that my approach is different. I do recognize that. I, I don't want to rush this walk through Revelation. I just don't. And so um, sometimes I, I feel the need lately to slow down a little bit and uh, I hope this is helpful to you rather than tedious for you. If I try again to kind of cram, I mean, 11 works, 1 through 14 works by, I mean, you could, you'll even hear me refer to the latter part of the text tonight. You can make it one sermon, but I talk a lot. So um, Revelation has both a cleansing and a clarifying effect on the reader who is led by the Spirit. The Bible has addressed a myriad of topics, right? It's Reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ as the word of God to whom we must listen and obey. And it is also revealed that we're unable to do that and therefore must be saved supernaturally by God's grace through the gift of faith. And then the lives we live after we have been saved, we walk by faith, not by sight. So the way in which we were saved doesn't change when we're talking about the way in which we live as believers in the world. It's by grace through faith from start to finish. That's the story. And it's as redeemed individuals who make a personal, uh, have personal faith in Christ, we are brought into one body, the body of Christ, who has been given a corporate mission that encompasses every individual member of that body and is part, pursuing the spread of that mission is part of what makes us one in the design of God, where there is a deficit in faithfulness to what we call the Great Commission, there will be a deficit in unity because eyes, instead of being on one thing, a uniform focus will be on tons of different visions and ideas and commissions for the church. So Revelation now reiterates this, but also deepens the utter necessity of obeying the command to proclaim Christ to the nation. So it begs the question. What can the church expect to happen as it spreads the gospel? What can we expect to happen? What should the, where should our focus be? What should our priorities be as the church? How will the unbelieving world by and large respond to us? What should we expect from them? How will all of this end? Will it ever end? Who is in control of the answer to that question? This is the purpose of the book. Of Revelation, the church is a twofold witness in this world. Until the return of Jesus Christ by declaring God's truth and by suffering for its sake. What is the task of the church in the world? Prophecy. And I don't mean, don't think of that word as one of its meanings of, uh, you know, foretelling the future or these kinds of things. I mean prophecy in the sense of the declaration of the truth. What is the task of the church in this world? Prophecy, declaring truth. What is the fate of the church in this world? Persecution and death. That's it. So where do we find our hope and our confidence? If that's the case, on what do we rest that we might complete this mission in the face of that reality? So let me pray one more time, and then we'll look at this together. Father, I need your help tonight more than I think I do. And so, Lord, please help me preach this passage correctly. I ask you by your grace to help me rightly divide your word. I pray, Father, that every year, including mine, would be open to what the Spirit is saying to the churches in this text tonight, to our church here in Moundsville. 
Father, I'm thankful for this people. I'm thankful for the heart here. I pray, God, only that you would enlarge it for our community and for our state. That West Virginia would be overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then maybe it would be the spark for this same to happen in our country and in the world. But, Father, we must adjust our expectations according to your word. So please help me tonight. Help everyone understand tonight that we all may believe by faith in the truth of Jesus Christ in his word. We ask this in his name and for his sake here. Amen. So I'm just going to read these first two verses in Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. That's new in measurements in Scripture. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So let's back up for a minute here and remember, because this is important, the structure of Revelation is crucial for understanding the contents. It actually helps us. It's sort of a key to help us navigate here. It's built. The structure is built mainly around three cycles of seven judgments. Right? You have seals, trumpets, and bowls. Only John doesn't give these three sevens. He doesn't give them to us consecutively, one right after the other. He gives the first six seal judgments, and then he stops. And there's a parenthesis in chapter 7, with God sealing his worldwide people, protecting them. Then he tells us the seventh seal. Next, he tells us of the first six trumpet judgments, and then he stops. That's where we are tonight. In this parenthesis, in chapters 10 and 11, before at the end of a chapter 11, the seventh trumpet blows, and his, he moves into chapter 12 and 13 here, the coming seven bold judgments. And then there will be another, although short parentheses, in chapter 16. So what's the rhythm to Revelation? Six judgments, parentheses, seventh judgment. You see that three times. It, so it cycles through that three times. Judgments, parentheses, seventh. So six parentheses, seven. John is telling the same story systematically, thematically, three different times in three different ways to drive home the point God wants the church universal to know here in the book of Revelation. As we come into chapter 11, and it's two scenes in the parentheses before the sixth and seventh trumpets, John is first given a measuring rod and commanded to measure the temple in these first two verses. Then he hears a voice from heaven giving an overview of this prophetic career of those the voice calls my two witnesses in verses 3 to 13. If we're remembering correctly, this will be more important next week, but it does help us tonight. If we're remembering correctly in both the placement of this parenthesis between the 6th and 7th in a series, in the theme of this parenthesis, the protection of the church in suffering and its dual structure, there's a first part and a second part, to the parentheses, this section corresponds directly to the vision of the 144,000 and this great multi-ethnic global multitude that we saw in Revelation chapter 7. Only the picture now of God's protective care over his church is described in more detail. There's more intricacy to it here in the vision of Revelation 11. The measuring of the sanctuary in verse 1 and the invincibility of the two witnesses in verse 5. After the testifying work is finished, they reaffirm, reiterate the promise of chapter 7. Nothing will be allowed to separate uh, God's people from his love for them. But in this vision, when John is prohibited from measuring the outer court here in the beginning, leaving it vulnerable to being trampled by the Gentiles, and the two witnesses are then killed by the beast later in verse 7, we're being reminded that God promises to keep us, but does not promise to spare us from all suffering. But instead, he promises to hold us fast in suffering. So listen to these verses again. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So... <clears throat> Just as we saw at the end of chapter 10, John's eating of the scroll recalled the command of the prophet Ezekiel to do the same. The instructions to John to measure the temple of God recall the climactic vision of Ezekiel 
in chapter 40, verse 3, Ezekiel is carried to a very high mountain, just as John will be in Revelation 21, 10, right? To view the first or to view the final temple, which the Lord is going to build in the last days. We read that in Ezekiel 40 through 48. While Ezekiel watched, if you remember, an angel measured the temple's dimensions that he saw in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 5. But in John's prophetic vision, here in Revelation 11, the prophet himself is given the measuring rod and commanded to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. The people are also being measured here. But then what follows, the command to measure, is not a list of its linear measurements, measurements like we saw in Ezekiel, is there? In fact... John will hear the perfections of the New Jerusalem later in Revelation, given in spatial measurements that are so extraordinary, we're almost forced to see it symbolically. It's, it's unmistakable. But in Revelation 11, the symbolic nature of John's command to measure is shown to us in other ways. And so John isn't told just to measure the temple and the altar, the architectural structures, but he's told to also measure people. Those who worship there. This is one reason why it is so important to let the epistles of the New Testament speak clearly to us and inform our understanding of Revelation. You can't just skip over the New Testament from Malachi to Revelation and try to make everything fit. We can't do that. The straightforward nature, the genre of the New Testament letters informs our understanding of apocalyptic or symbolic texts like we read in Revelation. That's deliberate. And so if we're constantly trying to get around what Paul is saying about the church and about Israel, because we have these ideas in our heads about who they are, we have to constantly jump through hoops in Revelation to interpret symbolic images, since by now we've redefined all the terms, right? The New Testament redefines the sanctuary of God as the people of God, period, that's meant to inform and to shape our understanding. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Peter does it in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. In 1 Peter 4, 14 through 17. And this has already been reiterated to us in Revelation itself in chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God on him. Right. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. That definition of the temple gets even more explicit when we read in 13:6 that the beast will blaspheme God's name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. They are the tabernacle of God. God's children saved by grace through faith. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem that appears is a wall-to-wall, top-to-bottom temple. Its cubic shape clearly reminds us of the Holy of Holies. And no other temple is needed except the presence of God and the Lamb in Revelation 21, 22. And this new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, 2 and 9, a picture of the church made up of people from every nation who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is the Jerusalem above, if you remember, that Paul speaks of in Galatians 4. She is our mother, the Israel of God. The Jerusalem below, the literal city over there in the Middle East, is in slavery because it has rejected the true Messiah. Remember, if we let the New Testament inform how we understand these terms, that's how we would read Revelation. If we skipped over the New Testament and are just thinking of Genesis through Malachi, then when we read Revelation, we're totally confused because we're thinking, well, Israel is this. And so, oh, this must be the nation. And no, beloved, we have to read these words in light of how the Bible has defined or redefined these terms in light of Christ, it's not that God meant something under one covenant and now he's changed his mind and means something totally different. The covenant with Abraham shows us what God's intention was for the nations all along. So. The Jerusalem below the literal city is in slavery as we speak because it rejects the true Messiah. That's not God's city. It was a type of. Of God's city. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem now is to pray for the church as we should, beloved. 
You are God's city. You are God's building. You are God's dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. God doesn't have two dwelling places. You and I are where his spirit resides. So here, John is told to measure God's temple. Well, what is his temple now? It's altar, which remember, that recalls the suffering church under the altar in chapter 6, verse 9, and in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and to measure the worshipers as a sign of the church's invincibility. That's what the measuring is all about. We've been weighed, we've been measured, and in Christ. Unlike in Daniel, we have no longer been found wanting, right? In Christ, we are the temple of God. The reason John is not allowed to measure the court outside the sanctuary, the sanctuary building itself, is in verse 2. Here's why I don't want you to measure it. Because it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So what are we seeing here? What is measured is under divine protection, What is not measured is vulnerable and exposed to being assaulted by the nations. But it's still a part of the temple. This also means that the court outside the sanctuary symbolizes the holy city. That's what we see here. The residents of this city are not then pagan idolaters that worship the beast. They are holy. The city is holy. They are God's people. So the court symbolizes a city. In Revelation, cities... Symbolize communities of people, not just collections of buildings and streets. But what is this holy city that is left exposed to the trampling of the Gentiles? That is, those who are not holy, are not God's people, regardless of their ethnicity. These instructions here remind us, they're meant to recall in our minds, Jesus' prediction of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's Luke 21, 24. That's our Lord speaking. Which alludes to Daniel 8, 13 and Zechariah 12, 3. Which also contained the word trample in the Greek Old Testament. Now, biblical scholars and interpreters have come to very different conclusions. Including people in the pew, right? We've come to very different conclusions based on the parallels between the words of John here and the words of Jesus in Luke 21. There are those who believe that uh, Revelation was written very early. It was actually written at a date before A.D. 70. And so chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 are predicting uh, protection of specifically Jewish Christians in Palestine from the Roman invasion and destruction of Jerusalem under the emperor Titus. Since, remember, back in Luke 21, 20 and 21, Jesus had warned them to flee the city when this began to happen. So in that view... The temple sanctuary here symbolizes first century Jews who believed in Jesus and were spared from the outpouring of God's wrath against those who had rejected him and killed the Messiah, Jesus. They are the ones symbolized in that unmeasured outer court, the holy city. Another view that some people take is that the measured sanctuary is the whole church and the excluded outer court, the trampled city, is the Jews who have rejected Jesus while the measuring symbolizes that the church has replaced the Jews as God's people until, that is, ethnic Israel is restored to faith in Jesus. Another view is that the measuring of the sanctuary symbolizes the preservation of the spiritual significance of the temple, worship in the presence of God, through the church, while the excluded court points to the destruction of the physical temple and physical Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Another view, we could go on and on, which is mine, by the way, is that the unmeasured outer court and the holy city it represents that is trampled under the feet of the Gentiles for 42 months are contrasting perspectives on the same true church being pictured in this measured sanctuary. That's who I think this is. Revelation is filled with paradoxes. And one of the most pronounced paradoxes in Revelation, or one of the hardest things to understand regards the church, And how Christ's holy temple city is both secure, measured, sealed, and vulnerable to attack from the earth through the persecution of those in the world outside the covenant community of Jesus. So we are protected from apostasy. We're protected from God's wrath by the grace and power of the Lamb. But then we're vulnerable to being trampled by the Gentiles, those outside the covenant community of God. Yes, Elsewhere in the Bible, the holy city refers to the physical city 
of the capital of Israel and its center of worship, Jerusalem. But in Revelation, the holy city is clearly identified with the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb, Revelation 21.2, Revelation 22.19. Now that the Son of Man has ascended to the Ancient of Days and taken his seat and begun to reign, earthly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that Paul calls the Jerusalem below and its religion, Judaism, are shown to actually be anti-Jesus. It's the site of the Lord's crucifixion. That's how we should see it now. And it's identified with the great city. Earthly Jerusalem is identified with the great city that we'll read about later next week in 11.8, which is symbolic of the humanity that stands against God, like other great cities in the Bible, Sodom, Egypt, Nineveh, most of all, Babylon. In Revelation 14.8, and 17.18. Beloved, again, since the people of God, by the Spirit, through the apostles, after the ascension of Jesus, have been redefined in a Christ-centered way, the name Jew no longer belongs to ethnic Jews who are against Christ. That name is reserved for those who have believed in Christ, as Revelation 2.9 and Romans 2.29 and Romans 9.6 and 7 made clear and have told us before we got here, and if we would have been listening, we would have been reading the words as they've been defined for us in light of Christ. You can't just forget that Christ has come and ascended when you get to Revelation. That's huge for how we understand it. The Son of Man has gone to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven, right? He's reigning right now at the Father's right hand. That has massive implications for how we ought to read the rest of our Bibles, and then understand correctly what came before it. Now, because Jesus has redefined the term so that we understand not that God has replaced the Jews, but what God has always meant ultimately by the word Jew, non-ethnic Jews, Gentiles who are for Jesus, have been redeemed and consecrated as a kingdom of priests to our God, which was the original intention for Israel, which we'll get to in Exodus. This is Revelation 5, 9, and 10. So also, the title Holy City no longer belongs to earthly Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem is now, in light of the coming of Jesus, just another expression in the world of the great city that slays the saints in 11.7-8 through 8 and 17.6. The holy city now is the wife of the Lamb who will be revealed in beauty, dressed for Him, ready for her wedding at the end of human history. Beloved, the words matter. I would say... For what it's worth, how we understand the word Jew and how we understand the word Israel will determine how we understand the whole Bible. Why are there so many different views of Revelation? It's based on how you see Israel and Jew in Scripture. That's really what makes the difference in how you read or how we read Revelation, right? It all depends on the baggage we bring with us into Revelation. And we all, me included, bring baggage into all of our interpretations, right? But if we've not let the Bible inform our understanding of what a Jew is in light of Jesus and who Israel is in light of Jesus, we are not going to interpret the whole correctly. We, we, we just can't. Instead, what we'll do is when we see the New Testament saying something about Israel or about Jew, we'll say, well, that doesn't mean uh, that there's no more physical Israel. This is just a physical, this is a spiritual Israel, and it's like this parenthesis. In, in this, you know, God's plan for national Israel, because they were everything, beloved. Why play word games? Right? The, the, Ephesians, in particular, is so clear. Galatians is so clear. It doesn't mean, if we, ha- we, we, there's various views here, right? It doesn't mean that people that hold different views aren't saved or something. Not at all. But, our view will affect our perspective of our lives in the world as the church. It, it will. It's, it's unavoidable. You, you'll either just be kind of holding still, holding your breath, waiting, and then your whole attitude towards the world will be, man, I, you know, it's pretty bad, but I'm going to get out of here, so I'm just waiting to get out of here. Right? That's a dangerous view to hold because it doesn't sound very much like Jesus at all or his apostles. The Bible doesn't read like the church of Jesus Christ is a parenthesis in God's plan for national Israel. I hate that phrase. I hate it. 
what disrespect and disregard for the person and work and supremacy of Jesus. That what he was responsible for was this little period in between the real story. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't come to exalt Israel for the world. He came to exalt himself for the world. So Israel is not the thing in the Bible we have to always make sure we're accounting for. The old covenant doesn't undo, replace, or change the covenant made to Abraham for all nations 430 years prior to the institution of the old covenant. The thing in the Bible we must always make sure we account for is the person and work and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I say we have to let Jesus inform our understanding of all scripture. Not just that, you know, occasionally you see these images of him like, oh, the, the cord that was hung out of the Rahab's window in, in, uh, Jericho was red, scarlet, so it represents the blood of Jesus. Beloved, there's no anti-type to the scarlet cord. So that's probably not a good type story, but beloved, that's not how we let Jesus inform our understanding of Scripture. He's behind it. He's driving it. He's in it. He's its point, its goal. Everything's about Him. That, that's not just every Christian would say that. Well, everything's about Jesus. Is everything you believe about Jesus? So that when we get to texts like this, we don't lose its meaning for us today. Let God be true, every man, me included, a liar in the church. We need to let the Bible tell us what it means. So in this meantime, between his glorious ascension and his glorious return, the true holy city, the church, will be trampled by the Gentiles, just as earthly Jerusalem, thus recalling the language, is trampled and raised by the Roman army under Titus in A.D. 70. In this meantime, that symbolized here is 42 months in verse 2, it will be shown to symbolize the period of the dragon's violent but ultimately worthless attempt to destroy the church through deceit and aggression in chapters 12 and 13. And so, what are these date stamps here? Right? What, what do they mean? 1200, uh, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Then in chapter 12, we see this phrase a time, times, and half a time. There are, again, multiple theories. Here's what I believe is in view here. I don't believe John is identifying specific periods of time, like you could mark them on a calendar when they start and when they finish. Most of us, I think, have been taught that uh, this is describing a future period in the world that hasn't arrived yet, that's split into two periods of three and a half years for a total, a literal total of seven exact literal years. I believe this language is used are designed to describe the entire expanse of this age in which the church lives between the first and second comings of Christ. It's the period during which the enemies of Jesus, collectively called the beast, oppose the kingdom, oppose the people of God, persecute and sometimes even kill those who belong to Jesus. I agree with Sam Storms here that the words are not chronological, they're theological not describing a specific quantity of time, but a specific quality of time. We first heard this kind of language in the Bible in Daniel 7.25, when he speaks of a time, times, and half a time. Think about that phrase for a minute. That's a single time, a time. Then it's doubled, time, so a time, times, one plus two. What's the next natural progression? You would expect the two to be doubled to become four. A time, times, and two times, but it isn't. It's a time that's doubled, becomes two times, but then it's cut short to only half a time. I think Daniel and John use this language to tell us that the power of the beast, the opposition of Satan's kingdom on earth, coming against the church, the people of God, will increase over time in strength and intensity. It will get worse from a time to times. And then when we expect it to double and become still even worse, as though it's the very end, it's cut off. It goes back down to half a time. So if we were to look at how these terms that we see here have been used all throughout 11 through 13, I think we're hearing John describe the period of persecution and distress for the church in a general or proverbial manner. Again, I realize this is very hard for us as Americans to buy this. We don't suffer any persecution unless we're getting teased on a show or something. And I know there's 
There are levels to persecution, absolutely levels of suffering. I totally understand that. I'm talking about what the Bible has in view when it's talking about suffering is normally, normally martyrdom, oppression, persecution, these kinds of things. Uh, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, right? So it's not talking about just feeling uncomfortable or losing rights that were first afforded to us by the state, right? It's not talking about this. I think we're hearing John describe this period of persecution and distress for the church in general or in a proverbial manner. And so you start to think about how we've seen these numbers before. If you remember during the ministry of Elijah, when Ahab and Jezebel were oppressively ruling over the Israelites, Elijah prayed and what didn't happen? It didn't rain for three and a half years. It was a barren period of time. If you remember in history when uh, outside of the Bible, when Antiochus Epiphanes IV desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, persecuted the people of God, that was a period of three and a half years. Forty-two months, that phrase might be taken from Israel's wandering in the wilderness, was 42 years, there are two years wandering, and then the 40 years God imposed on them in discipline. Some say the 42 alludes to the different stations or encampments that Israel would break into in the wilderness. Some speak to how three and a half is a shortened or a broken seven, which seven in the Bible is a symbol for the interruption of the divine order, right, of perfection by the malice of Satan and his evil evil forces. In light of these things, I think these terms refer collectively to the time of tyranny until Jesus comes, from when Jesus ascends to his return and his conquering of the beast. These words operate like when you see in the middle of a flood or a disaster the Red Cross, you realize, okay, medical aid is here. Uh, A horrible symbol, just how symbols evoke, like the swastika, it evokes hatred and um, racism and, and genocide and all these things. That I think that's how these words are operating in Revelation. They signaled in the minds of God's people a time of suffering, a time of tyranny, a time of persecution. They're not good times. So it's, it's not about how long, in terms of strict chronology, this period lasts, but rather what kind of experience is happening in these periods. We aren't trying to say that the Bible isn't true, right? That, that's normally the accusation. We're not trying to, we're not quibbling over what was said. We're quibbling over what it means. Right. We this is what God inspired. The question is, how are these words used? How should we understand them? Again, if we if we try to be rigidly literal, our theology will break down. Think about this. I'll probably mention this again next week because it will help us in particular with the two witnesses. If you would have heard Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would appear, you would not have believed John the Baptist you would not have taken his baptism because you would say, no, no, no. It says Elijah. It means Elijah. Jesus says, no, John the Baptist is Elijah. Well, John the Baptist isn't Elijah. Well, in the sense of biblical prophecy, he is. So we have to be very careful. We're trying to figure out what the Bible means, right? What it says is, is where we start. And again, we all do this. There's no, we all do this. What do we do when we read that you must, Jesus says you have to hate your family. He doesn't mean hate. Well, why did he use the word hate then? All right. So this is just, I hope you know by now, <clears throat> even if we come to a disagreement on these things, beloved, I take this book deathly seriously. All right. I don't, I like didn't pick some view that sounded cooler. Okay. It, it, it took me years to come to these things. And that, I'm not saying that to brag. Who cares? I'm saying I study this book with all of my heart. Like I'm not just like, I think it means this. No, 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 no. So please, at the very least, even if you say, I can't believe that's what you believe, that's fine. But, but please don't think I don't care about the integrity of Scripture. That has to be clear by now. If I haven't accomplished that yet, there's no reason for me to be here, right? So... Again, it's, it's not about how long, in terms of strict chronology, this period lasts. It's rather what kind of experience are God's people having in these periods when we read them. It's not the length of time, it's the kind of time. It's not chronological, again, but theological quality. These words want to evoke in our thinking. What we're being told here, 
is the ministry of the people of God, the church, throughout the course of this present age, is also designated as the time of the beast that extends from his ascension to his return. And if we would say, how can you say that? Not for us, it's not. Not for, not for this church. Not for America. God's blessed America. Not for America. Okay, go to North Korea and try to live the same life as a Christian. Try it. Or Russia. Or Iran. Or China, maybe. Or Indonesia. Or Nigeria. Where I just read this week, this week in an article on Breitbart.com, a Christian is martyred for his or her faith in Nigeria every two hours. Every two hours. Listen, until the American church embraces the fact that we're the church of Jesus and we're not the key to America's renewal and America's prominence in the world, we probably won't face any real persecution. We're not pushing back. We're, we're trying to build up the state so that it protects us. Christ is our protector. How did this happen? We think that our ease is God's blessing. How can we think that in light of what we read in Scripture, that ease automatically equals blessing? Ask Job. Ask Paul. Ask Jesus. Ask Jesus. What will it get you in this world to give yourself fully to Christ? Pain and death. I wonder why we don't suffer like this. I wonder why the idea of suffering is so alien to us that we have to play games with the word to justify our existence. We aren't engaged in the fight. That's why we don't suffer. Tony, do you want to suffer? No. No. I hate pain. I'll run from it. I hate it. But beloved, we're the church. We're a completely different entity in this world. So, if that's the case, if this is how we should read verses 1 and 2, then who are these two witnesses? We'll read about God willing next week. That's, that's part 2. We'll get to that next week. But being measured here tonight in verse 1 symbolizes the church's invincible nature spiritually. Same as being sealed back in chapter 7. Remember, that's the picture. Remember how this parenthesis mirrors the placement, the theme, and the structure of that parenthesis in chapter 7. That's intentional. Protected by God, marked as His own, sealed by Him, measured while the unmeasured courtyard in the holy city given to the Gentiles to trample in verses 1 and 2 symbolizes the same body's visibility or vulnerability to suffering in this in-between in which we live. Physically vulnerable, but spiritually protected. This dual picture balances the biblical picture of the church as both invincible and vulnerable in this age. And this will be demonstrated even more clearly and directly in this next vision John receives of the two witnesses. The church is a twofold witness in the world until the return of Jesus by declaring God's truth and suffering for its sake. So we need to ask again, in light of the text tonight, what are the prospects for the church in today's world? What should we expect and what should we be doing? That's, I believe, the question Revelation 11 Answers And beloved, we are witnesses. The word for witness is martyr. It doesn't mean that you're all, we're all going to be killed, nor does it mean that we have to be killed or we weren't real Christians. We, beloved, we may never experience persecution on this level. That doesn't make us sub-Christian. Right? Don't, please don't leave tonight feeling guilty because you're not being beaten for your faith. No, 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 no. It's just, this is, we are very, very fortunate to live in the country that we do on one side because we don't suffer this constant persecution. On the other side, the scripture is written to a suffering church, right? That's, that's why so often we have to take it and make it into something it's not. We, so much, uh, so many counseling books are about how you can get to this level of life and faith where everything is just hitting on all cylinders for you and it, it just, beloved, it just doesn't jive with this. I mean, everybody that followed Jesus 
and the father in scriptures had an extremely difficult life. Why would we think it would be different? The ascension of Jesus doesn't mean that everything's done. It means that everything will be done, that God's design is guaranteed to be fulfilled. But we're witnesses that that the fact that we have ease doesn't lighten our command, our commission. South Korea sends more missionaries abroad by percentage of population of Christians than America does now. We live in the greatest country in the world, and we send less missionaries than little South Korea. We're witnesses for Jesus Christ. And in this world, in this age, until our Lord Jesus returns literally and visibly in power and in glory, until that happens, we are charged with proclaiming the truth about Jesus To everyone, including his enemies. And that means, if that's the case, if, like Paul says, if we would agree with him, that we are sheep led to the slaughter in this world, that, you notice, again, that's his basis in Romans 8. How can you say nothing can separate us? How can you say that, that we're, we're saved and sealed and blessed and all these things, Paul? How can you say that we're, we are regarded, we are being killed all day long? We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Do you see his rationale? In these things, we are more than conquerors. As witnesses, as sheep led to the slaughter, we're going to suffer persecution. Yes, the more deeply we engage in the fight, maybe it takes us into places that are much more difficult. There are, there are tribes that still exist on the island of New Guinea that have no gospel witness among them, no believers. And many of them will kill you if you come. Right? South America, in Mexico, in Mexico, there are tribes in the hills of Oaxaca, which is where one of our missionaries, Chris Johnson and his family, they live in Oaxaca proper. Their mission is in the jungles, on the mountains, or in the trees. Finding these groups, right? They will kill you. They'll kill you. And we say, sitting here, right? Why would you ever take your family there? That's stupid. That's irresponsible. No, 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 beloved. That's the fight. What did Jesus say? Like, we think it just means that, well, uh, I'm going I'm to commit to no longer watching R-rated movies. That's great. But that's not where the fight is. Only in America do you have kind of the ability to sit and think and have a whole class for four hours on whether or not you should watch this or that TV show. That's fine. Right? There are things you shouldn't watch. But, beloved, that's not the fight. We've been left here to fight. Right? Why would Chris and Michelle go to Mexico near these tribes that might kill them? Because the lamb will receive the reward of his suffering. That's why. Right? And one of the reasons I respect that so much is because I'm not there. I don't have the guts. I don't. Beloved, we're a church. We're a church. We're here to witness of the gospel. That's it. That's it. Witnesses suffer persecution. There's no way to be a witness and not suffer. So the question is not really about suffering. The question is about witnessing. I think for many of us, our whole Christian life is wrapped up in the church, in the building, in its activities and its people and all those things. And absolutely there's a place for that. We're one body, right? We need to love one another, support one another, bear one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another, all these things, right? But, beloved, for the sake of this mission, what is the task of the church in this world? Prophecy, the proclamation of the truth. What is the fate of the church in this world? Persecution, but you're safe. That's the message of Scripture. This is God's will for us. This is who we are. This is what we're told to do, and this is what will happen to us if we do it. So the real question tonight is, do we want to be a church or a place where Christians meet together and share things in common?
right? I don't know where we are yet. I'm only four years in, or almost four years in. God is working on my heart all the time. Again, that's not piety. I mean in the sense of conviction. Okay, not like I'm his special boy and he's showing me everything. No, 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 no. No. I wish that was the case. It is not. The answer to that question, do we want to be a church, is not found in us deciding, well, then we're going to go out and be so militant we're going to get persecuted. No, no, no. No, no, no. The answer is found in whether or not we want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Because according to Scripture, one will follow the other. So it may never mean we have to move to the Amazon. It could, absolutely, for any of us in this room, for any of us. God may push us out, right? But there will be persecution of some kind when we proclaim the gospel. And so don't feel like you're less because the persecution you face is just from your own family. Maybe they won't invite you over for dinners anymore or something because they don't want to hear about Jesus or whatever it is. That's also persecution. But, beloved, it's it's just a lighter form, right? But it's still persecution, what I'm saying is, is that if we're witnesses, we will be trampled by those who don't belong to him in one way or the other. But we are simultaneously safe and indestructible. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Right? We should sing a mighty fortress is our God more. Such a good hymn. Look at the church throughout history. Right? Why are we so different from it? Right. It's like we just we just don't have the same level of suffering that almost every other part of the world has. And very soon may be here. I mean, it's in Canada. Pastors are going to jail in Canada because they preach that homosexuality is a sin. And if you try to counsel somebody out of that, it's a hate crime. Right. And so they're going to jail for it. And listen, we don't need to tee off. On homosexuals. That's not the gospel either. That's not what I'm advocating. But when the rubber meets the road, if they stick a microphone in your face or a cop pushes you up against a wall and asks you the question, do you believe this is a sin or that is a sin? Yes, I do. Right? If that's what puts us in jail, then maybe that's what will happen. How can we be the witnesses God has called us to be then, Tony? Beloved, one thing has to happen. One thing, we, we, we just need to believe the gospel. That's it. Like, I, I don't have a program to get us there. I don't know that you need all these types of things to, you know, find your niche. And I, I just, listen, it has to hit home that Jesus died for me and I don't deserve it. I think that's the impetus to mission. Then the people that are in my life that don't know him, that's all they are to me. It doesn't mean I don't value them as a person or love them as an individual or as a human being. Like they're a, you know, a, a stripe on the belt for me. No, no, no. It means that I, I can't go a moment without looking at my dear uncle and aunt and not care about their soul in the name of friendship and kindness and peace and all that. I want that with them more than anything. I don't want to lose that. I know if I preach Christ to them more than I already have, it's going to happen. But again, what am I? What what did I expect that I would think that's like, no, 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 that's too inconvenient. What have I believed that's made me think that? Why have I attached ease to God's blessing and God's presence in this world, look no further than his son. Again, look at the, just look at the church in the Bible. That's what is normal. We're abnormal. And again, you don't have to try and change it. This is where God has us. The question is, don't forget who we are in this abnormality where there isn't great suffering. You're not sub-Christian. It's not that you aren't doing enough. The question is, Am I engaged in the fight as a witness? God will take care of all the other stuff. The level of my suffering, the level of my persecution, right? God, 
we'll see that, right? And the, the, the answer is not to become belligerent in our witness, right? And, and then excuse our being a jerk as well. I'm just being opposed because of the gospel. You might be being opposed because you're unbearable, right? So we don't want to go that way either. Believe the gospel. Believe that what Jesus did, he did for you, and it's true. Because once the cross grips our hearts, all other grips on it will loosen. So I think you got to keep preaching Christ. Revelation has now taught us that we're both sealed and measured as the church. He has us, and this is good news because according to the other things we're reading, we're going to need him to have us. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The war's over. Which means if you lost your life for this, you would issue immediately into the presence of Almighty God. Don't be afraid. Believe what the cross accomplished for you. Everything else is dust in the wake of the plowman. Samuel Zwemer, I think, said that. Trust him in every step of your life, beloved. You belong to him forever. You belong to him forever. Even as we struggle to become the witnesses the scripture has called us to be. In the world we will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. He told us exactly what we needed to hear.